Amen. Thank you, Tim, so much. And uh, i tell you, what, what I like about Tim's uh, worship leading uh, already, uh, not just all the talent that he throws, uh, puts forth, but, you know, the gospel message, I feel like every week has already been presented even before I get up here. Isn't that great? Amen. Now, he's uh, putting his, uh, all of his equipment in a dangerous spot here for me, I'm sure. But um, let's take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to Psalm 63. Been in a series of messages on the Psalms. And as you're turning there, let me just share with you a great event that's coming up uh, with us uh, this coming Saturday. You've heard some things about it, but maybe not a real explanation. But back when, <clears throat> in the fall, when all kinds of things were going on here around the United States with different racial tensions and um, you know, with first responders, all that, we decided, uh, many of us uh, sort of had kind of the same idea of getting together, getting the churches together, and just celebrate the Lord and celebrate uh, Oviedo together. And so um, <clears throat> some of the merchants here, especially the bank here, has uh, gotten together, and we're going to have what we call an Oviedo gathering next Saturday from 5 to 7. And the reason we're asking you to sign up, the only reason is uh, basically is uh, they're going to serve barbecue. And uh, I think it's Four Rivers. But we don't want you come to come just to eat, all right? And you have a mission. And the mission is, is that you reach across and meet people that you don't know particularly if it's a different uh, church or really a different race. We want to reach across uh, racial barriers if there are any in your life. And we want to, you know, we want you to get over some stuff and we want you to meet some people that you would normally never get a chance to meet. We want them to meet you as well. And so you come with a mission uh, from 5 to 7. We're going to have a service there. We're gonna, Tim's going to be involved in it. I'm going to be involved in that service as well, a little worship time. Uh, but before that, as we eat and as we gather together, uh, you come and not be uh, intimidated uh, if you're uh, sort of an a, a, a introverted type person. God is going to give you the victory to, to reach across and meet some people next week. And so with that, really, it just kind of dovetails into the message. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about loneliness and I know that that doesn't maybe, it's not one of those messages that really fits everybody right now. I know that. It's not like preaching on discouragement or lack of hope or a lack of faith in our life or going through doubts. But there are people here perhaps this morning that you're contemplating something that's uh, unimaginable in your life. And one of the reasons why you're doing that is because you feel so alone. You feel the loneliness inside. It's been said that loneliness has been described as one of the most uh, universal sources of human suffering. I remember being a student uh, while I was at the University of Georgia, and on three different occasions while I was there during my uh, tenure, no, I wasn't there that long, uh, <clears throat> working on my bachelor's degree, uh, we had people, in fact, one of the, one of the uh, dorm rooms of Reed Hall was called Hangman's Hall. And a young man hung himself in one of those dorm rooms. He had a roommate, but his roommate was living with his girlfriend, and he, he didn't have any outside fellowship at all, didn't know anybody, and finally he just couldn't take it anymore, and in his loneliness, he took his life. Now, we think about that sometimes, realizing that 70% of those in nursing homes, for example, never get a visit. 17 million Americans live alone. What is loneliness? Well, it's, it's the feeling of maybe reaching across in the middle of the night where your, your spouse was supposed to be, and for one reason or another, they're not there anymore. 
It's walking through the house maybe when you realize that all of your children are grown and gone. It's, it's maybe uh, waiting for that phone call and you suddenly realize that your boyfriend and girlfriend and you have broke up, broken up and they're not there anymore. Loneliness can take many, many different forms, but one of the things that two things are true about loneliness. Number one, it can draw us to a relationship with God that we have never experienced before. And number two, you can have victory over loneliness. Now, you may be one of those people that deal with it all the time, back and forth, back and forth, because of the aloneness that you experience in your life. There's a, vic- there's a victory over that. It's a moment-by-moment moment type of thing. Maybe you're going through a loss in your life, maybe the death of a loved one, and you're going through that sense of loneliness, and really what, what you need is a kind of a one-time fix. Well, that's here in the Bible as well. So we're going to be looking at this, and as we're looking at uh, this, one of the th- reasons why I want to see this psalm in a new light is because of what it says and what they call the superscription. In Psalm 63, it says, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, when we think about the wilderness, we think about something that has some prayer, you know, prairie or forest or whatever. No, this is desert. This is about 50 miles west of uh, the Dead Sea. Nothing but desert there and dryness and a lack of water and a lack of food. But more than that, as David is looking at some some similarities to describe what he's feeling on the inside, more than that, we realize from verses 9 through 11 that he's being chased by his son Absalom. He's, He's been ostracized from the kingdom. And what has happened, he realizes that this is his fault. Because remember back in Psalm 51, we talked about that last week. And not that I want to connect all the Psalms, but this just connects one of the things that happened in Psalm 51 is that the Bible says that his, his uh, son uh, that he was going to have with Bathsheba died. Well, there were more consequences to David's sin with Bathsheba and the fact that he killed Uriah the Hittite. Now, David was forgiven of everything that he had done, but at the same time, there were consequences in his life. And some of those consequences was really family turmoil. Ammon uh, raped his half-sister, Tamar, and then we find out that Absalom, Tamar's full full brother, killed Ammon, and then Absalom, because he is so mad with his dad, overtook him and overtook the kingdom, and David now was on the run. And so we know that he was dealing with aloneness. We know that deep within his heart, he was seeking out something that only God could help him with. Now, maybe that's where you are today, and if that's where you are, or you have been there, or you feel like you're going to be there, this psalm is for you. I want us to see three things about it. Number one, our longing for God, as we look through David's eyes, his love for God, and finally, his looking for the Lord to rescue him. I want us to see, first of all, our longing for the Lord. Let's look in verse one. He says, oh God, now he he describes God as Elohim. There's different Hebrew words for the name of God. This means uh, the God, the Almighty. God, I know that you're there, but I know that you are all-powerful, almighty. You are my God. Now, how many, you think about that for just a moment, that statement that David's making. We can make that same statement today. God, you are my God. If you are a Christian, if you have received Christ into your heart, 
You can say that. Think about that. This is my house. This is my car, something of your possession. This is my daughter. This is my son. This is my husband, my daughter, my mom, my dad. There's only a few things in life that you can really say, my possession. This is my. And that's what David was declaring. And he's saying this, I shall seek you how? Earnestly. That means really the break of dawn. He says, I'm going to seek you early. But it really doesn't mean early in the morning necessarily. It just means as first priority. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's describing, as he's looking down the ground, this word dry means a, <clears throat> a cracked surface. And so he's looking down the desert. He's seeing where water used to be, and now it's all cracked. And he said, as this water brook is cracked, as the, as the sand is sitting here in front of me, and it's so dry, and there's no water around, and, and I'm thirsting physically. I thirst. I am desperate for God at this time in my life. Then we find that in verse 2. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary. He's, he's remembering. Anytime you go back, I, I know this guy, I, I know this man, uh, we'll just say he's in his 80s, lost his wife, and he cut off his television, and now he's sitting there every day, and you ask him why. He says, I'm just sitting here with my memories. Anytime you look to the past and say something was better in your life, there's a hunger there. There's an appetite. There's a thirst there that won't seem to go away. He says, to see your power and your glory. He says, I yearn to be in church, basically what he's saying in New Testament terms. I yearn to be in church and corporately worship with everybody else. I, I long to just feel your presence in my life. Now, when we're looking at this word, I want to concentrate on one word here uh, just for a moment. And this word seek in verse 1. The Bible says in Romans 3.11, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. And yet at the same time, and I say this very conservatively, you can look it up yourself in a concordance. We are told and commanded to seek the Lord over 250 times in the Bible. We're told one time in the Bible that we don't seek God at all. Now, that seems to be a little bit of a contradiction. But what the Bible is simply telling us is that before we receive Christ, we really don't seek after, hard after God the way that the Bible describes that we need to be seeking after him. But what happens, the Bible says in John 6, that we are drawn by the Father, by the Holy Spirit, to the Son. And we are convicted of our sin, and then we receive Christ into our heart, we then can say, you are my God. You are my Savior. You are my rescuer. And then there's something in the heart that develops a new appetite that says, I want to seek the Lord in a much, much deeper way. And we are called upon in our loneliness, in our aloneness sometimes, in our solitude, to seek him out. There's a need in our heart. And an appetite, by definition, is the absence of something in our life. Now, you and I can go, in fact, let me just say this. Those sometimes seeking after God, in, apart from the cross of Christ, is just really seeking to get away from God. Now, think about that for just a moment. You know, you're, you're, you're there and you say, oh, I'm just trying to seek God. Well, the God is right here in the Bible. Yeah, but I'm going to seek after a God of my own making. Or I'm going to seek after a God where I don't have to 
to really change my life at all. I'm seeking after a philosophy. And we, we seek and seek and seek, and it drives us maybe further away from God. God has drawn us with his spirit. The very moment that we receive Christ into our heart, the, the, the response that we have to God and say, God, I want you. I'm receiving you. John 1.12. I'm receiving you into my heart. I want you. I'm responding to you. The Lord comes into our heart and develops that new appetite. Now, you and I can get our appetite satisfied by other things. Now, think about it. An appetite is a lack of something. It's an absence of something. Physical appetite that he's comparing it to. A physical appetite of thirst, of, of hunger. You can eat something that's going to kill your appetite, but it's not going to be very nourishing. Somebody tell me what that could be. Sweets. How about that? You know, have you ever told your child before or you ever been told as a child when you were younger, don't you can't have that cookie. You can't have that ice cream. Who in the world is going to take their children and feed them sugar before the meal? Why don't you do that? Well, for one thing, they're <clears throat> they're all over the place. <laughs> you know, let's face it. But also that's going to kill their appetite for the nourishing things. Now, we can kill our appetite with other things as well. One of them, of course, is, is sin. And we can say, well, you know, sin can ruin your appetite, whether it's sex, money, companionship, those kind of things in your life that the Bible, a, a wrong companionship rather, the Bible says that you get into, it's going to satisfy your appetite for a, for a small season. I read this story, and, and some of you maybe can identify with this since we live so close to the ocean, but when you're in the ocean, there's plenty of water around, right? Plenty of it. But can you drink it? No, why not? Because of the salt. Now, if I've heard stories of guys out on a boat, abandoned, drinking the seawater. And it's salty. It, it, it satisfies their thirst for a brief moment. And immediately the aftertaste makes them thirsty more so than they were before. And they become thirstier and thirstier all the time they drink it. If they didn't drink enough of it, they, it kills them. And so that's the way sin is for us. It satisfies just for a little bit, but the loneliness in the inside, the emptiness on the inside just grows more and more and more. But there's good things too that we, you know, TV in itself, you may disagree with me and that's fine. Uh, don't, please don't <clears throat> send me, uh, Herb Long is here today, so send him a couple of cards and letters about that. Um, <laughs> we are going to have an ordination this afternoon and he's here for that, uh, a couple of our guys. And, uh, but we can, we can have TV. You know, turn on the TV. That's a good pacifier. You know, I'm lonely, so what do you do? You turn on the television. I'm lonely, so you read a book. I'm lonely, so you can even have fellowship with someone else. You can say, well, you know, here's my friend, and, and it masks the, the, the appetite I have because now that I've met with this friend, it gives me a longer satisfaction, and it does. That's the reason we, we want you to go to a small group. In fact, that's really necessary for you to grow in the Lord. God has made us to be social beings. And yet sometimes it can mask something that there, there's a deeper need on the inside. And there's a reason why that loneliness is not suppressed in your life. Now we look at this and, and he comes to a conclusion in verse 3. Very early in the psalm. He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. Now he moves into a second thing. He says, I'm going to express my love and my praise for you. But why? He says, because your loving kindness is better than life. Now this word loving kindness really in the Hebrew <coughs> means something 
far deeper than what we see here in this passage. It means a faithful love. It, it has to do with that unconditional kind of love. And he says, God, as I praise you and worship you and, and really embrace you, I, I realize that your, your loving kindness, my love relationship with you is greater than being a king. It's better than life. I would rather die here in the desert of thirst with you than go and be in my kingdom, be the king, have a kingdom, have all the money, have all those wives, all the concubines, all those other things, all the power, all the glory, all the adoration. I'd rather have this life with you than all that. How does a man get to that point? How does a man get to a point where he says, I'm not lonely, even though I'm alone, I'm in solitude, I am not lonely. I have you. He gets to that point because he's expressing his love for the Lord. Let me say something about David. As you're reading these psalms, and we're reading seven a week, one every day, and I'm preaching on one of those psalms on the weekend, on Sunday. And as you're reading these, one person said to me, wow, you know, it seems like David is up one day and down the next. Why in the world doesn't he just believe the Lord? You know, why couldn't he do that? And I said, wow, it's not only that, but he's up and down on the same psalm. Sometimes, just like us, wrestling. That's what he's doing. He's wrestling with all the things that are going on in his life. And in this psalm, he wants to get next to God because of the, the appetite that is being suppressed in his heart. How do you get there? Our love for the Lord. He says, my, he says, I, my lips, in verse 3, will praise you. Notice what it says. My lips are going to praise you. Verse 4, I'm going to bless you. My hands are going to bless you. My, my soul is satisfied. He says, I'm going to be satisfied. My mouth offers praise with joyful lips in, in verse 5. Over and over again, he talks about this praise. He says, because your love is better than being even king over all of Israel. Now, when we look at this, it's interesting to note that there are about four ingredients, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. Now, please don't get me wrong, but I tell you, this will get you far down the road. There are four basic things to worshiping the Lord. And basically, David is saying in these Psalms, look, until you learn to worship the Lord, until you really learn to take him in, you're never going to get over your depression, never going to get over your discouragement, never going to get over your lack of faith. Hey, you're never going to get over your loneliness. All these felt needs that you have in your life are going to be, continue to be felt needs because you're not dealing with the real need of putting God first in your life. But notice there are four things. One, he says, we need to do this mentally. We need to get mentally involved in looking at God and I don't want to say dissecting him, but really looking at who he really is. There's a big difference between, in fact, if I were to ask you this question right now, for everybody, I'm not going to do this, but everybody to stand up and turn around and, and just greet one another. But instead of greeting one another, I want you to tell somebody beside you something really great that you love about God. It'd be some of you hard, kind of hard to do. I, I've been around people that have been asked that pointed question, which... I would never want to put you on the spot that way because you haven't had a chance to meditate like David's been meditating. But somebody will say, oh, well, 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 well he's all-powerful. Uh, he, he's, he, he's, I mean, he's, he's powerful. He's God. I mean, what more can you say than, boy, he's God? You know, and everybody says, yeah, that small group, yeah, you're right. That's a good answer. But they're, what they're really thinking is, is that all you got? You know, is that, is that it? Because so often 
we're very much on the surface and haven't really thought through things. Many of you have heard of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and if you've not heard of her, you've heard the first line of her sonnet 43. And I don't know much about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, great poet, but I do know she must have had 42 other sonnets because this is number 43. So that may be how much my knowledge goes. But she starts off the sonnet in this way. You finish it for me. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then she does. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. Doesn't it sound like David? When feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun during the day, by candlelight. She could have said, oh, by the night and the day. No, by the sun and by the candlelight. Romantic, deep thoughts to say, I thought about my love. Now, we, we can use this, you know, that she's talking about probably loving a person, loving a, maybe a man. And we can use this in marriage. And you know, you've, you've uh, been to, seen some of the Hollywood movies, you've watched television and and, you know, there's always some guy that's a girl. Here's the scenario. A girl that likes a guy because, you know, maybe physically or whatever, or he's got a lot of money. She really likes him, and she's really trying to make it work. But there's another guy in her life that's a real friend that knows everything about her. And sooner or later, all that stuff comes out. Well, I don't, I don't really want to uh, describe all this to you when I can show it to you. And so this comes from a little uh, movie First hour didn't think it was all that funny, so even if you don't think it's funny, it's fine. There's a point to it. And there's compliment. Depending on who you are, a compliment can mean an insult to you as a compliment to someone else. But we see the difference between a surface compliment and something deep where you really know someone. Let's roll the tape.
Well, like I said, a compliment to one, to one animal maybe is not so much to the other. I, I just wouldn't. The lesson here is don't try to compliment your, your wife or your girlfriend by saying that she's chunky. Uh, <laughs> but there's more to it than the lesson there. <clears throat> you know, we're like that with maybe our spouse, you know, but we're also that, like that with God. We say, okay, let's describe God. All right, well, he's, uh, you know, we think about the attributes. He's all powerful. But we don't think about how powerful he is in our life. We don't think about what he's done. Uh, well, he's all loving. Well, how has he loved you? And he's saying, oh, man, don't put me on the spot. But the psalmist, David, describes God. And he's deep in the heart of God mentally, thinking to himself, what does this really show me about God? Loneliness can be some, become mere solitude. And solitude's good. You can get along with God and really find things out. Loneliness become, becomes mere solitude. When you begin to describe God, and you describe him even in romantic terms as far as the sun and the, and the daylight versus the stars at night, and, and you think about, and you start contrasting things and comparing things with everything around the world and what God is doing in your life. And when we, we understand the cross and what he's done for us, then we describe him in a whole different light. You've got to get into it mentally, but mentally, you need something after that to back it up. And that is you do it demonstratively. You demonstrate something. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, doing it with your hands raised and worship in church, but it includes it. Look in verse 3. My lips, he says, I'm going to praise you with my lips. I'm going to bless you as long as I live. I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to be satisfied. My mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. And he begins to describe what's going on in his life, even as he's laying down worshiping God. He's merely saying, I'm demonstrating it. What does that do for us? It backs up what we believe. It backs up the joy of the relationship. Now, many of you are involved somehow in social media. And I know that because I'm a, I'm a Facebook friend with you, and I, I look on, and I see all these marvelous pictures and grandkids and kids and what your kids are doing, playing ball, and all this stuff. What are you doing? You're saying, look, I, I want to share this. I want to share this picture with you because it brings joy in my life. You, you come across a funny video. You share it with somebody else, don't you? Because you want somebody to laugh like you're laughing. You share it with someone else. You demonstrate in some way. That's why it's so important. We back up what we believe by our demonstrating it in our everyday life. Then, number three, we appraise him. Now, we think to ourselves for just a moment, you know, I'm, I'm getting involved in this mentally. I'm thinking through who God really is. And then I'm getting so excited about it, I'm sharing it with somebody else. But then you begin to appraise him this way. Look what, what he says. Because your loving kindness is what? Better. He's, he's comparing. It's better than life. St. Augustine has said, St. Augustine, the one thing that says more about you than anything else is what you love. And here he's deciding. When he's comparing, really thinking through what he had, what he has right now, I've got the best. I've got what really matters. He says, I, I may be lonely as far as not having my children around me. 
I may be lonely about my, my wives are not around me. My kingdom's not around me. Nobody's praising me and being so wonderful for, for uh, my, my uh, antics and war and things like that. Nobody's, nobody's adoring me, but I'd rather have this relationship with God. He says it's foundational to everything else. In fact, so those other things, he's thinking, may even steal them away. And he's appraising it. He's analyzing it. And he finally says in verse 7, for you have been my help. This, this idea of help in the Hebrew, listen very carefully, means that God is doing something for him that he could not do for himself. See, all through the Bible we have that. It's not just us receiving Christ in our heart. We have types and shadows of that all throughout the Bible. And David is saying, look, I couldn't do this by myself. And he goes on to say, for in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. What is this? I'm protected. That, that is symbolic language. That's romantic language, you might say. I'm in the shadow, like, like you're a giant bird. And like a giant bird would, would protect the young and protect the helpless. I'm in the shadow of those wings. And I am protected from my enemies that he talks about verses 9 through 11. And now he says, because of that, I'm connecting. I'm seeing it. My soul clings to you. That is, you stick to me. I desire now to know you better than I've ever known you before. Your right hand upholds me. Even with all my enemies around me, I remember you. Look what he's already said in the Bible. It's just building up to it. He says, I see your power and glory, verse 2. He says, I am satisfied with the marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. He's always satisfied. He says, I'm remembering. And remembering, as we've said before, always builds your faith. So he remembers back what God's done for him in the past, maybe killing the giant. Other things that, as he was writing Psalms, uh, um, uh, keeping the sheep for his dad, and all the things, the Bible says he's killed a lot. He told, he told uh, Saul, King Saul, I've killed the lion and the bear. And all the things that he's gone through, and all the times that he's been rescued before. There was another time that he was running from King Saul because King Saul was jealous of him because David was already been pronounced he was going to take over his throne because of uh, King Saul's sin. And so King Saul was after to kill him. And he remember the times that he was in the caves before. He remembers the times that he was in the desert before. Have you ever been in the desert before? Before now? I think you have. Have you ever been in the wilderness before? Have you ever been lonely before? Have you ever sought after God and felt like maybe he wasn't there close to you? He says, I'm remembering these times that you have rescued me. And it builds his faith. It enhances his love for God when he remembers and he feels this oneness with God with all the problems that he had been through before. Is that where you are today? The Bible says your soul can be satisfied in the Lord. Well, then... True worship is adoring him for what he is and what he can do. And David has come to the conclusion that's very important. He says, Lord, I love you for who you are, not merely for what you can do. Now, I, I've had that epiphany in my life many times. The first time um, was when I was a, a fairly young Christian, uh, still growing in the Lord, still in that young experience. And I found myself getting very excited about the Lord a lot. In fact, I kind of lived on that mountaintop. And, of course, when you burn up your emotions, you can live on the, in the depths as well. But uh, I was a young believer. I was preaching. 
And uh, I was learning stuff for the first time. And, and one summer, I, I never will forget it, I, I just, uh, it seemed like I woke up one morning, I was tired. And I never got rested. And I wasn't physically tired, I was spiritually exhausted and for some reason. And there was no excitement there. I'd read the Bible, no, no real excitement, comfort, but no excitement. I would study the Bible and, and plan for a message and nothing was there. And God finally would give me a message. And I, I remember one time stepping up in the pulpit about ready to preach my first, one of my first revivals. And, uh, you know, if you don't know what that is as a series, it's not really necessarily a revival. You have five or six nights of meetings hoping that the Holy Spirit will fall. And I started on Sunday morning at um, Vineyards Creek Baptist Church, Comer, Georgia. And my cousin was the pastor there. I remember getting up to the pulpit and saying, God, I don't, I don't have anything. I've got a message, but I, I just I don't think I can preach this. I feel like a hypocrite. I mean, there's no sin in my life, but I just can't, I can't get fired up about this thing. And I said, God, you just take it. I opened up the Bible. As soon as I started reading the Bible, boom, all of a sudden it just came on. It's like somebody was behind me preaching through me. And when the invitation was given, boom, it just quit. My cousin was there receiving people coming down the aisle. Back then, you didn't have counselors, you know, lay people helping out. He just did all the counseling himself. So somebody came forward, and a young teenager, and gave his, looked like he was giving his heart to the Lord. Very emotional time for him. The pastor brought him off kind of to the side. And there was another lady just waiting there, crying. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I just, you know, I just don't know if I'm qualified to even counsel with her. I, I went down anyway. She was getting saved. Her son was the one receiving Christ. She was receiving Christ as well, separately, separate decision. And I thought, wow, God, she's so excited about you. I just wish I had that. I found out by the end of the summer what God was doing in my life. Because as I was praying, I went through John 21, where Peter was asked three times, Lord, or Peter, do you love me? And Peter said twice, Lord, you know I love you. And finally, the third time, he said, well, Lord, I love you like a friend. And I looked at that passage in a new light, in my light, where I was. And Peter was an excitable guy. But now all he could do was just simply obey. And God was speaking to my heart and says, Dwayne, do you love me? Or do you love me for what I can give you? Do you love me for me? Or do you love me because of the excitement? Do you love me because of the pump that you get spiritually? Or do you just love me for me? David was coming to a point, and there's nothing wrong, by the way. A person receives Christ because they have a need. Once you receive Christ, there's going to be a time in your life where you say, God, I'm either going to love you for you or what you just bring to the table. Wouldn't that be kind of insulting to your, your mom, your dad, when they realize one day, hey, you know, the only reason you showed me any love was because you had a need. And now that I'm not giving you money anymore, place to live anymore, you don't love me anymore. But yet that baby came into this world, and the reason they claimed they were clinging to you in the first place is because they did have needs. There comes a time in your life, and David was coming to one of those points in his life. And so then, because of that, and because of his remembrance of things, because of his loving the Lord, he began to trust him. Now, David was in a bad spot. Think about it for just a moment. 
There were people that offered to go into Jerusalem and kill his son Absalom, and he wouldn't hear of it. So he couldn't kill Absalom. He didn't want to capture Absalom. It was his, it was his son, for crying out loud. But yet, he was out in the wilderness, and until Absalom died, he really couldn't go back in. And here's what he said as he was looking to the Lord. Verse 9. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go to the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be prayed for fire. They're going to live by the sword. They're going to die by the sword. For the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory. For the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. They live by the lie. They're going to die by the lie. They live by the gossip. They die by the gossip. He says God's going to take care of it. I had a friend of mine. I don't think he'd mind me mentioning his name, but I won't. Pastors in another state, or did pastor for many, many years, about 30 years. And he was um, gone off on a preaching engagement, returned, and he noticed lights on at the church. And he thought, wow, what's going on? He saw cars, see cars in the parking lot. He walks in, and they're having an, they have elders in this particular church. And uh, they were having a meeting, a meeting to vote him out as pastor after 30-something years. And he started discussing with them and discussing with them and talking about it. One of the elders didn't, head elder, I guess, I think didn't like him, was afraid that he was going to get replaced as the head elder. And so he was, it was just uh, kind of getting ahead, ahead of the, the game, I guess. But he went before the church. They went before the church. They voted. He, he got voted back 95% positive vote. Um, and people actually, as I understood, stood up and voted on him. But the elders the next day met him in his office and said, we're brought a lawyer, we're going to sue you. And he says, I don't want any part of that. And he resigned. They began to spread lies about him, nothing, nothing real bad like adultery or anything like that, just that he was mad at everybody, nobody needs to go see him, nobody needs to talk to him, just those kind of things. And he said, Dwayne, to this day, he said, and this was about a month into it, no one has called me from the church, no one has walked down my driveway and said, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Now, he's had to come to a place in his life where he says, you know, Lord, you're going to take care of all that. There are people in your life, maybe you don't have, like David had real enemies. Maybe you don't have that kind of enemies in your life. Maybe you do. Most people don't have like an archer, you know, like I was watching uh, that great uh, drama show, what's called uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. And... Uh, I'm watching a rerun of that. And he looked at Robert and he said, you know, he's one of my, he's, he was my arch enemy. And Robert says, oh, you have an arch enemy now? You're some kind of superhero? Very few of us have an arch enemy, but we do have things in our life that if things would go better, we would be better. We would be better off. And he says, God, you're going to take care of those things. Because I've been brought to a place in my life I realize you are better than all those other things. And my enemies are attacking those other things, but now I see clear. It's not those things, it's just you. Now, David had something with the Lord. He was anointed king, but we have something that David could never really have. That is the Holy Spirit living inside of us that is looking back 2,000 years on the cross and see how much God really, really does love us. As he went to the cross and died 
there for our sins. You and I, as we look back on the cross, as we're drawn by the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God comes to live inside of our heart, we know that we're not a victim anymore. We are victorious in Jesus Christ. What about you today? What about you? There was a little story told about um, a lady by the name of Simone Vey, who was a French-Jewish agnostic intellectual who died during uh, World War II. And uh, Tim Keller tells a story about how she um, read a poem, I believe it was by, by Robert Herbert, according to uh, the encyclopedia, and it depicted Jesus as being an innkeeper. And in this particular poem, the reason she read so many poems is that she had trouble with migraines. And she was an agnostic. Her parents were agnostic. She didn't believe in any of that stuff, any, anything that we believe in or any kind of religion. But she began to read poetry for migraines, and she ran across this, this poem that was a Christian poem. And it had a lot of analogies in it. And it made Jesus the innkeeper. And he was inviting this man to come in. He says, I want you to come in and eat and dine. He says, I'm not worthy. I'm to blame. And the innkeeper said, oh, no. I took your blame. Now you come and you eat with me. And the man goes in. And she read that and understood that. And she said this. She was so moved. She says, I was so moved. I claimed God, and God came down and took possession of my soul. And she said it wasn't just an imagination. It was a reality that overwhelmed her. Dear friends, when the reality of the cross grips you, and you relinquish that guilt before him, and you, adopt, you are adopted into the family of God, and you say, now, God, I have something and someone that's better than life itself. Then you'll become victorious and you will never be lonely again. With heads bowed and eyes closed. This morning, I pray that none of us here would find this message directly related to us today. But I am, I'm not going to be naive to think that it does not. And all of us, I think, can identify with this at some point in our life. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one moving around, the quietness of this moment, if you want to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, if you are that man standing, that man, woman, or child standing outside of the doors, and the innkeeper is saying, no, I've taken your blame, you come in. If you would be willing to walk in through those doors, Pray this prayer with me right now, silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, I know that there's an emptiness inside my soul. I know I've successfully filled it temporarily with many things. But now, God, I just want to fill it with you. I want to be able to say that your love is better than life. So I turn from my sin and being the boss of my own life, I invite Jesus to come <clears throat> to live inside my heart. Because the Bible says, as many as received him, 
To them gave you the power to become the children of God. And that's what I want to be. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.